When you talk about the tribulation, people have different responses and feelings about it. Some don't like to discuss the tribulation at all. You bring up the tribulation, ah, I don't go there, I don't talk about that. Others know nothing about it. They just don't know anything about it. And still others like to dissect it down to every last little bit of it. And it is a period of time, and Chuck Missler used to say this, it's the period of time in the Bible, there's more said in the Bible about this period of time than about any other period of time that the Bible talks about, which is interesting. The tribulation is something that should be discussed. It is something that Christians should know about. The question is why? Why should it be discussed? Why should Christians know about it? Well, it's in the Bible. Amen? Yes. <laughs> Amen? Turn off your notifications and your dings and... <laughs> How do you do this? Oh, shoot. You're going to have to deal with it because I fooled with my, I fooled with my thing this afternoon to bring up, bring up my F functions, and now I can't turn the volume down. So anyways, hope I don't get a phone call. <laughs> Where were we? Why should we talk about the, the tribulation? Well, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. That's number one. Number two, Jesus talked about it. Jesus talked about the tribulation. And number three... It's going to happen, right. right? So these are all really good reasons why we should discuss it. In our study of God's plan of redemption and restitution of all things, this plan that we've been looking at, we have come to the seventh month. Remember, we're going through the seven feasts of Yahweh, the seven feasts of Israel, uh, and we've been looking at this, and we've come to the seventh month. Last time in our time together, we looked at the Feast of Trumpets, and this began the fall feast. It began the seventh month of Israel's calendar, and, the, and remember, the calendar is the catechism. The calendar was God's way of communicating to his people his character, his attributes, his thing, the way he felt about them, what he was going to do for them and in their lives, and prophetically what he was ultimately going to do through the person, work, and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, the seventh month is significant. We talked about that. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. It's the idea of, you know, at six, it's kind of just you're one shy of the full, the full thing. So you, you have to go to seven to get to that number of completion. The seventh month is a consequential month, a month of completion. And it is a big part of the perfection and the completion of God's plan. First, we discussed the Feast of Trumpets. That was last time. That started the month of completion, the month of perfection. And that was the feast that started on the first day of the month. Then 10 days later, so on the first day of the month, Feast of Trumpets, 10 days later, you have the Day of Atonement. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight the Day of Atonement. We're going to look at the Day of Atonement and what it's about and what, what, it, what it means, what it meant for Israel, what it means for us. And then it, we're also going to take a look at how it prefigures the Great Tribulation, which is a time period, a very specified time period in the times of the end, the end times. Okay, so let's take a look at... Um,
I'm a little slower tonight, right? So you have to just bear with me. Um, let's take a look at this passage. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to rock and roll. All right. Leviticus 23, pick it up, verse 26. It says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and, and an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the morning at evening, and from the evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. The Day of Atonement. The day we call it, in the Hebrew it was Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. It was not unlike many of the other feasts, and, and some of them were just outright celebrations and just Thanksgiving times and, and worship. This one was a solemn feast. It was a solemn celebration in that sense. It was a day of solemn reflection. It was a day of rest. On the Day of Atonement, the instruction was, and it was interesting if you were paying attention to the reading just then, at least three times in that text, it said that the people would afflict their souls, that you shall afflict your souls. The first time there is Leviticus 23, 27. We'll have it on the screen behind me. You shall, and that, I, that, that, that must not be right, affect your souls, but it's actually afflict your souls. All right, just blame that on the one-armed situation. <laughs> Take it down. <laughs> the word afflict there is a word in the Hebrew. It means to afflict, to oppress, to humble, to be bowed down, to be put down, to become low, to be depressed, to be downcast, to be afflicted, to stoop, literally to stoop down in some sense. Each person in Israel was, was instructed to do this. They were to, to bow down. They were to, they were to humble themselves. They were to reflect in, in a solemn reflection. They were to, 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 to be, it wasn't like, ah, you know, up here. It was more down here. It was a solemn thing. They were to afflict their souls. Each person in Israel was to humbly acknowledge their personal sin before God. And in recognizing one's own sin, admit and appreciate the need and longing for forgiveness. They were to afflict their souls. And there was actually a warning there. Did you see that warning? That this was not like if you didn't do this, there were like some pretty severe consequences because this it was an important day, the day of atonement. 
The specific priestly instructions for the Day of Atonement are given in Leviticus 16, and you can just mark that in your notes, but we're going to go through just the basics of what would happen on the Day of Atonement, okay? The two goats. The high priest would bring two, two, two goats would be brought uh, from the flock. Two goats would be brought to make, a, one to make a sin offering for the Lord, and he would uh, they would be presented to him at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the high priest would take the two ghosts and he would cast lots. And there would be a lot that would fall to, the, to one goat and to the other goat. To the first goat, the lot that fell to the first goat, that was the Lord's goat, Yahweh's goat. And then the lot that fell to the other goat, that was the scapegoat. And we'll get into that in a second. The priest, uh, the lot that fell to the Lord's uh, goat was offered as a sin offering. And we, we went through the sin offering and what that was. Um, and then the other lot was the scapegoat and it was presented to the Lord to make atonement. And they were both given, they were both presented to make atonement for the sins of the people. So let's first talk about the Lord's goat. The Lord's goat. Aaron would make atonement for the people. The high priest brought the the goat, he would bring both goats and he would lay hands on the goats. And this was the standard procedure for presenting an offering, right? You would lay your hand upon the, the animal and, and confess the wickedness, the rebellion, the sin of the people. And this was kind of like a transfer of the sin onto the sacrifice, onto the animal. And this is how, how, how it worked. He confessed all the wickedness, all the sin of Israel and that was transferred to these sacrifices. The high priest symbolically placed Israel's sins on the goat's head. The Lord's goat died for the sins of the people. The Lord's goat died, Lord's goat died for the sins of the people. And this echoes what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Sometimes people aren't as eager to praise the Lord because they're not familiar with how bad their sin actually is and how bad it actually was. When, you know, even Jesus comments on this, a question is brought to him, who's going to be more thankful, the one who's forgiven less or, you know, little or the one who's forgiven more? No, the one who's forgiven more will be more thankful and, and, and more worshipful. And, and, and I think we're probably all Pretty, pretty close to being in the same category. We're all in pretty, we were all in pretty bad shape without Jesus, without God. Amen. And when we realize uh, how bad the sin situation was in our lives, uh, then, then we're ready to, to worship. We're ready to give thanks. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Death, a sin brought death. And so the Lord's goat was killed for the sins of the people. And the high priest would do this. He would enter into the Holy of Holies on this particular day, this day of atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sin offering of the Lord's goat upon the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, right? And he would, he would sprinkle the blood of that atonement up on the mercy seat. And this actually says a lot, right? Because it's the, the life the law told us the life was in the blood, sprinkling the life, 
sprinkling what represented the life of the animal that died for the sins of the people on the mercy seat. And remember, we talked about the mercy seat. We meet God at his seat, at his throne, which is actually a seat, which is called mercy. Amen? Praise the Lord. Because there was a sacrifice given, there was a sacrifice made, and we can obtain mercy from the Lord. So that's what happened with the Lord's goat. Now, there was the other goat, remember, because there was two goats. The second goat was called the scapegoat. And it was the, the sin, the, the high priest also put his hand on the scapegoat and therefore transferring the sins of the people, the wickedness, the rebellion of the people onto the scapegoat. Only this goat wasn't killed for the people. This goat was released into the wilderness. And the goat, the goat was led out into the wilderness and it literally carried the sin of Israel out into the wilderness, just away, gone. And that was called the scapegoat. Now you know where that terminology actually came from. I actually asked my, I went back after, I don't know, almost 20 years back to my high school and I asked my, I went into the high school and there was one teacher that I could find and it was my high school English teacher that I did my junior year with in American literature. And we were having, you know, just, hey, good to see you and all that stuff. And I asked him a question, can you understand uh, American lit or English lit without having a cursory understanding of the Bible? And he admitted, no, you can't understand it. Where are you gonna know where some of these terms come from? The scapegoat right? Everyone wants a scapegoat today. Well, praise Jesus. We've got one. His name is Jesus Christ. He took it. He took our sin and he carried it outside the gates. He took it out into the wilderness for us, never to be remembered again, never to be counted against us. Amen. So Jesus deals with our sin exactly like this. The sins of the world were placed upon him. Remember when he stood before Pilate, and after he had been scourged, he was brought back, and the Roman soldiers put the scarlet robe up on him. And remember, uh, Isaiah said, though your sins are scarlet, the scarlet sins of the world were put upon Jesus after he had been scourged. And then what happened? He was taken, and he walked outside of the city, out in that sense, outside the gates of the city would be considered the wilderness. That's why, you know, there was a big issue back in ancient times of the wilderness and that you couldn't survive out in the wilderness. And he was literally taken outside the gates of the city and there he took the sin of the world and he made atonement for us, amen? Amen. So he's Yahweh's goat and he's the scapegoat. He's Yahweh's goat and the scapegoat. Now there's a lot of talk these days about who's the goat. Who's the goat? Is it Tom Brady? Who is it? Let me tell you who it is. Jesus is the goat. However you want to say it. He's he's Yahweh's goat. He's the scapegoat. And he is the G-O-A-T the greatest of all time. Amen. (laughs) Don't you love that? Put that out on Twitter. Uh, So back to the instructions. The instructions God gave Moses for the feast had a stern warning. Um, Any person, here's the warning, any person who is not afflicted in his soul 
on the same day shall be cut off from his people. Why? Because if you weren't a part of having, of, of actually um, being in that place of affliction for your sins and the sins of the people and your own personal sins, you didn't, this was the way that the, the work of that atonement was applied to your life specifically. That you had, there, there is something we have to do when we come to salvation. God's done the work of salvation. We actually have to do the humbling. We have to do the thing where we come before God and, and realize that he's the only one that can do something about our situation. And if you don't do that, well, there's, a, there's severe warnings about not coming to that place of confessing Jesus as Lord and realizing that he's the only one that can do something about your sins. And he's the only one that had done anything about sins. Look at all the religions. Study up. Study your Buddhism, your Islam, your whatever it is. He's the only one that did something about your biggest problem. He's the only one. And all he asks from each and every one of us is if we'll humble ourselves before him, if we'll afflict our soul in that sense, that he might lift us up, that he might be the glory and lifter of our heads. Amen? Amen. So that's the way to receive it. That's the way to receive it. Now, the Day of Atonement was a day that God provided for Israel's salvation, and he forgave their sin. And that salvation was received nationally and personally, just how we just described it, nationally and personally. Now we're going to move into what the Day of Atonement speaks of prophetically. That's what it spoke of in a, in a very specific, literal sense, but it was also, there was a prophetic nature of the Day of Atonement, and we're going to take a look at that now. The Day of Atonement also prophetically speaks of a time that is to come following the church's rapture. We talked about the Feast of, of Trumpets, and the trumpet is going to sound. The trumpet is going to gather. The trumpet was constructed in Israel for the purpose of gathering and relocating the people. Right. Amen? Right. So that trumpet's going to sound, and it's going to sound on the first day of the seventh month. And of the Feast of the Trumpets, there was a phrase that was, that was a part of that feast. Of the day or hour, no man knows. No man knows the day or the hour. They, they, know, they know around the time that it was, but because of a lunar calendar, you don't know the exact day and the exact hour that that new moon is going to appear. Right. So of the day of the, and the hour, no man knows. People know that of its prophetic sense, but what it specifically dealt with was the Feast of Trumpets. And prophetically, no one knows the day or hour he's going to come in a, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, but he is going to come at that time. Amen. Now, this time period that's going to come immediately after the rapture is a time of tribulation. Now, again, I said before we got into this, there are differing views on this. I'm presenting the view that I'm presenting to you based upon the weight of the order of the feasts and the 77s prophecy in Daniel 9, okay? I believe that the order of things in Scripture is very specific, and they're not just thrown in there haphazardly, but that there's a specific order for a specific reason. 
trumpets is first in the fall, then the Day of Atonement, the day that they would afflict their souls, then the Feast of Weeks or Tabernacles, okay? So we talked about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. We talked about the 77's prophecy, right? And if you'll remember, Jesus came at the end of 69 of those weeks, exactly on the day he presented himself as the Messiah Prince, as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, literally on the day, 69 weeks of seven years to the day of the command to rebuild the temple and the wall of the city of Jerusalem by Artaxerxes in 445 BC on March 14th. This is a matter of record. That's why the psalmist prophetically said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah, we sing that song I sang growing up. It's not specifically talking about every day, although it's true of every day. But that psalm is specifically talking about an actual day. The day that was specifically prophesied that Jesus would be presented as the Messiah Prince. Now, where we left off is that you had 69 weeks of the years fulfilled. Now there's this dangling week out here. There's this seven-year week. Remember, there's a week of days and a week of years. This week of years, this seven-year, this what's called the 70th week of Daniel is just kind of out here. There's been a gap between the 69th and 70th week. The tribulation is really that 70th week. Once the tribulation begins, you can pretty much put it on a countdown to exactly when the second coming is going to occur. Okay. Now, the last week of years, known as the 70th week, is a time that Jesus refers to as the great tribulation. People talk about, oh, well, people go through tribulation and tribulation and tribulation. No, 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 that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say it was tribulation. He said it was the great tribulation. And this is how he described it. That there, will, there has not been a time on the face of the earth like it, and nor will there ever be after it. It's a time unlike any time that will ever be on the face of the earth. So unless that time has already occurred, the worst time that ever was on the face of the earth, and we know that that time is still yet to come, right? And Jesus talked about this. And one of the interesting things, and you can find Jesus' comments on this in Matthew chapter 24. And one of the interesting things that Jesus talks about, because he's asked, answering questions about the end times. The disciples are asking him what, about the end times. And there's a, interest, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. But one of the things I find interesting is Jesus said, read Daniel. <laughs> read your Daniel, Right? Jesus literally says, I mean, Jesus is God, so he wants you to read the Bible, right? Yeah. But literally, he told the disciples, read Daniel. You want to know about this stuff, mm -hmm. right? So it's the great tribulation. The, the great tribulation is a time of trouble. It's a time where the souls of a specific group of people will be afflicted. And it is, it is a national Israel, not a spiritual Israel, but a national Israel. And they're the ones that are, are talked about in, in um, 
the Bible in Romans where they, you know, where there's a, a veil over their eyes when they read the law, they don't, they don't see Jesus. You know, they, the Jews of today, they read Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and somehow they just don't see Jesus. So they have other explanations as to how that's not some exact prophetic word about the suffering of Christ on the cross for our sins. They don't see it. So there's coming a time when there will be a tribulation, it will be an affliction of the soul for national Israel. And this is prophesied throughout scripture, but I wanna bring one scripture to your attention. Jeremiah 30, verse seven. It'll be on the screen. Hopefully I got this one right. Here's the prophecy. Alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. So here's Jeremiah actually saying so that none is like it, okay? So Jesus is actually quoting Jeremiah probably. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. It's a time there wouldn't be, it will, none will be like it. That's how great. And great there is used in the same way uh, you could have used the word terrible <laughs> there, right? Um, you know, Ivan the terrible is terrible, and, 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 and the word terrible, it, it, we think of terrible as terrible, but it, it's kind of like, it can be used almost in the, in the sense of ominous, right? So it's great, but it's a time of Jacob's trouble. Well, who's Jacob? Israel. Israel, very good, very good. Jacob is Israel. So this is going to be a time of trouble for Israel. The time of affliction that is coming is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's going to be a time of affliction for the people of Israel. Now, how many of you are paying attention and have been atten paying attention for your whole lives to see that we have this crucible in the Middle East, this tiny little plot of land that causes the world problems because there's such fighting over this little piece of land that's about the size of New Jersey, right? And there's Palestinians and this and that and the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the, 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 the Turks and the, you know, all this stuff. And what are we going to do? And what are we going to do? And who's going to bring peace? And who's going to, a two-state solution? And, you know, the, dealing with all this stuff. And so, it's just kind of going to a point. We're headed towards a point where, where things are going to happen. Things are going to happen. It's prophesied in the Old Testament that there's going to be an attack upon Israel. Now, if you, if you looked into, you know, if you were like a fly on the wall in the offices of, the presidents and prime ministers and kings of these neighboring nations in, in the Middle East, whoa, <laughs> you could find out some interesting stuff about what their actual desire is. The reason why there's no two states, the reason why there's no Palestinian state right now is because every time that has been offered to them, they've rejected it. They literally... They have, they have, there have been prime ministers in Israel that have get, given up so much, actually too much, too much, because even Netanyahu 
has said that they cannot go back to the pre-67 borders because they're literally indefensible. You cannot even defend the nation of Israel. If you've ever been there, there's a section where if you carved out the West Bank and the section from the West Bank to, there's a section of it where it's like nine miles. It's literally indefensible. So this thing is headed towards a great, great conflict. And this time that it's, the time that it's gonna happen is a time of what's called Jacob's trouble, right? Jacob's trouble. Now there's a purpose for this time. Now we don't have time tonight to go into all the different things that are gonna happen. That's a completely different study. And everyone said, amen, right? <laughs> That's a completely different study of all the different things that are gonna happen in the tribulation, the two witnesses and, and all kinds of stuff. And you, that's, a, that's the study of Revelation, right? So we're not doing that tonight. So it's suffice it to say we're gonna end up, we're gonna finish up on the purpose of the, of the tribulation. The purpose, all the stuff that is happening is happening for one singular purpose. And that is for national Israel. There will be a remnant of national Israel that, whose eyes will be open in the time of their affliction and they will call upon the name of Jesus. And we're even beginning to see inklings towards these types of things happening as people's eyes are being opened. But I want to read a very specific verse. It's found in the book of Hosea. And it's Hosea chapter five, verse 15. And I'll have it on the screen behind me. He says this, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now, okay, to the, to the Israeli, to the, to the Old Testament Israelite, this is an Old Testament book. This is a book that's a few hundred years before Christ, right? A couple interesting things about this verse that just stick out to you, right? The first thing is, he says, I will return. Wait, 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 where did God go? Right? God's on his throne in heaven. God's ruling on, on high. God, right? Mm -hmm. but, but here he says, I'm returning. I'm returning. I'm going to go back to my place until they acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. The eyes of a remnant of Israel are going to be open in the time period of the tribulation. And they are going to seek the Lord Jesus. They are going to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is actually what is going to bring about bring us to the precipice of the second coming, to that grand moment in the book of Revelation that all of heaven shouts hallelujah, right? Mm -hmm. Remember that, the hallelujah chorus? Yeah, that's the verse that Handel wrote in his work of music. Very interesting. In their affliction, they will seek me. The purpose of the great tribulation is to bring Israel to an internal place where they seek and acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and they will eventually cry out to him to save them and he's the only one that can do it. Mm -hmm. Amen? He's the only one that can do it. And he's the only one that can save us. And he's on, the only one. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. 
Confucius can't do it. Nobody other great thinker, great this, great that, wrote down great stuff, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They never could save you. They never did anything. What did I say? Oh, blah, blah, blah. They could never do anything about your sin. And Jesus did. Amen? So there's going to be this remnant. How are we doing on time? Not bad. With everything that we've done in this service so far. So I want to finish up on this remnant that's going to call out up on for the name of Christ, right? Because this remnant is talked about in the book of Revelation. It's the Revelation chapter 7 that deals specifically with the remnant of Israel, those whom in their affliction of their souls will cry out to the Lord who will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. In chapter 7 of Revelation, it, it, it talks about 144,000 Jews that are sealed with the mark of the living God. With the mark of the living God. Now, you've heard about the mark of the beast, right? Raise your hand if you know anything about the mark of the beast. You've heard of it. Not that you know anything about it. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you, you don't know anything about the mark of the beast. Never heard of it. Never heard. Okay. I just want to talk briefly about the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is specifically talked about in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, when the beast comes, the beast is, you know, when you say the mark of the beast, it like, you know, oh, what is this, some scary, like, rated R movie, like some, like, Spielberg, like, you know, some, uh, not Spielberg, who was the guy that did the horror, you know, I don't know. Stephen King or something, Stephen King movie, Halloween, yeah, it's almost Halloween, right? This is some Halloween thing, the mark of the beast, the beast is going to crawl out of the swamp and, you know, whatever, no. The beast is a man, the beast is a, a, uh, a, a governmental system that is ruling the world at this time, right? And that's why, that's why there's a push for bringing everybody together and doing this, you know, we're going to combine and we're going to come under one flag and we're going to do away with the borders. Here's the issue with the borders, okay? God established the borders, in Deuteronomy 32, he separated mankind according to the 70 nations that were on the earth at the Tower of Babel. Okay? God separated the nations. He actually made the borders of people. And, and, and I will say this very clearly here because this is a statement that I've had in my head. I've said it, and I, this is a great place to say it. Any system of man that attempts to bring the world unified under one flag that is not a part of the kingdom of Christ, is of antichrist and is rebellion yes. against God. Yes. And it's not going to work. So that's why I'm never on the side of that. And I don't want to be sitting in heaven saying, I was on the side of the people who were with the antichrist. Okay, So you won't, you won't find me in that camp. Okay. Amen. <laughs> I get fired up, fired up about a lot of stuff. Amen. But let me tell you about the mark of the beast. I'm going to read the verse of scripture here. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. He causes all, it's on, it'll be on the screen. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And this is where, it is actually written in the text, in the Greek text, where people have made the reference to 666, okay? The number of his name. 
okay? But what this tells me, and for centuries, people didn't know what, you know, they've, there was just conjecture. The amount of conjecture on this verse could probably fill libraries, right? Yeah. We're beginning to see how this would even be possible. That all monetary transactions could be actually monitored and controlled. We're literally on the edge, the precipice of the cryptocosm of cryptocurrency. We just had this week Mark Zuckerberg. I don't have anything against Mark Zuckerberg. Super smart guy. Came up with a Facebook, you know. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I post pictures on Facebook. Shoot, my business is on Facebook. The church is on Facebook. I don't have anything against Mark Zuckerberg. Some people are going to like kind of unwittingly invent technology. It's kind of like the Terminator thing. <laughs> they're going to they're they're unwittingly create te the technologies that are going to bring about the, the possibilities of the things that are spoken of 2,000 years ago in Scripture. How could 2,000 years ago, could you conceive of a global system that could actually monitor the buying and selling and the control of, of monetary transactions. And now we're, 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 we're entering into a, a world where we're going, to, we're going to eventually, you know, it's like we're going to have the cryptocosm. We're going to have cryptocurrency, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's only a matter of time. So... You've got the mark of the beast. However, we, we, you know, people have speculated. You know, there's people, there's companies actually that are chipping their employees now. In, um, you can just Google it. Not now, but Sweden. Yes, you saw that story. Chipping their employees. We don't. Okay, we, we don't know. For 20 years ago, they thought the mark of the beast was the UPC code. Like you know, every you know, there was a day when the cashier at Safeway used to ring you up like this by pushing buttons. Right. Dink, 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 oh, 49 cents for the lettuce, you know. <laughs> rice aroni, 69 cents. Put it in the bag. Now they, now they came up with the system where they could scan it and then put it in the bag. And then they said, well, we don't even have to do that. You do it, right? <laughs> now you're working at Publix just announced they're creating self-checkout lines. I just saw that today. Publix. Coming to a Publix near you. Um... <laughs> It's the end times. <laughs> We're going to be checking ourselves out at Publix. We're shopping is a pleasure. Um, where was I? Oh, so the mark of the beast, right? So there's a mark of the beast. We don't exactly know what it's going to be. We, can be, we, we still see through a, a glass darkly on some of this stuff. Um. But let me switch gears. There's the mark of the beast, but there's also the mark of the lamb. Amen. The mark of the lamb, right? And that's the one you want. So this, seven, this 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, there's going to be 144,000, 12,000 from, from very specific tribes that are named. If you read Revelation chapter 7, there's very specific tribes that are mentioned. One is not mentioned. We don't have time to get into why that is. But anyways... Um, I think it's Dan, actually. <laughs> I looked that up. Um, Revelation 7. See if you see the tribe of Dan. Um, 
But anyways, um, there's the mark of the lamb. In Ezekiel chapter 9, the, the, the tribulation in this sense is a fulfillment of the pattern given in Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel 9, there was a, a similar protective seal given to the righteous before Ju, uh, Jerusalem is judged. And the seal in Ezekiel 9 is the, heap, the mark that is actually put on the foreheads of the people that are marked by God are, is the Hebrew letter Tau. Now, this was written in a time when it was the ancient Hebrew. There's a modern Hebrew that has the Tau uh, that is a, kind of a rounded uh, letter like this. It's kind of like an, almost like an upside-down U. The Paleo-Hebrew letter Tau was a, a, literally a marking that looks exactly like a cross. So in Ezekiel 9, the people were marked with the Tau. And in Revelation 7, they're going to be marked once again, this remnant of 144,000 that is a picture of a much larger number, I believe, personally. So I don't think it's going to only be 144,000. I think a lot of times when you look at these representative numbers in Scripture, specifically dealing with Israel, they're representative of a bigger number of people. Okay, so did I have a picture of the town? No, we don't have it. I, we were having problems with the, the picture. It was a real tiny JPEG, like a thumbnail or something. Um, so there will be those of Israel who are afflicted during the time of Jacob's trouble and they will recognize their sin. They will accept the lamb of God they will literally, in that sense, spiritually receive the mark of the lamb. They will be marked for God during the time of tribulation. And at that time, these are the people that Hosea talked about, that in their affliction, they will seek me. In their affliction, they will cry out to the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord because he's the only one that's, that can save them. And he's the one that is going to save. Amen. And this will all occur during the great, great tribulation. And so the tribulation has a specific purpose that it kind of is bringing it back kind of full circle where a remnant of national Israel is um, whose eyes are opened that, that come in to the family of God and are calling upon the name of the Lord and bringing us that much closer to the second coming, which is what we're going to talk about next week. So don't miss that. But this is the tribulation. It was first prefigured in the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, thank God, that we have the goat, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord's goat and who is the scapegoat, who took our sins upon himself, died for our sins, and carried our sins outside the city into the wilderness where they will never be found. Amen? Amen. So cast your trust and your faith in the name of Jesus Christ.